Today on the podcast, we're having a conversation about inclusion. Now, when it comes to inclusion at work, I think we can all agree that diversity, equity, and inclusion matters. This is something that few people would debate. But while there's been countless studies that show the importance of creating inclusive workplaces, the current evidence shows us that much of the effort and investment that we make in diversity programs, on average, don't have as much impact as we would like to see and at times can even have a negative impact. During the research for my book, Let's Talk Culture, I was first introduced to today's guest on the podcast. My guest on the podcast today is Samir Srivastava. Samir is right at the beginning of a mega study to design a set of interventions that change inclusion and belonging outcomes with a particular focus on how social networks are structured within organizations. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about why it's even needed and just what it's going to mean for creating a practical framework for workplaces where people can truly belong. Samir is a professor of business administration and public policy at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business and is also affiliated with UC Berkeley Sociology. His research uses computational methods to unpack complex interrelationships between group culture, individual cognition, and interpersonal networks, and examine how they jointly relate to individual attainment and organizational performance. His work has been featured in journals such as the American Journal of Sociology, American Sociologist Review, Administrative Science Quarterly, Management Science, and Organization Science. It's been covered in media outlets like the New York Times, Fortune, the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and Forbes. Samir co-directs the Berkeley Culture Center and the Berkeley Stanford Computational Culture Lab. In a prior career, Samir was a partner at a global management consultancy and currently holds an AB, AM, MBA, and PhD degrees from Harvard University. Samir is an exceptionally clever person, and I'm so delighted to have him on the podcast. Samir, welcome to Phone Calls with Clever People. Thanks so much for having me, Shane. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you. I'm going to try and keep them very simple just to start with. We do these three fast facts, which is where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? Great. So I was born in New Delhi, India. uh, And then I moved to the United States at a relatively young age when I was five years old. Very first job, if I were to go way back in time, would have been during high school when I worked for a brief period of time as a cashier at a store called Caldor, which was at the time maybe a lower-end version of Kmart, believe it or not, that existed in the U.S. It's since gone bankrupt. Now I am a professor at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. I have this kind of weird interconnectedness to you through my wife. My wife was actually studying in a program and you were teaching at the time, and I was writing my book on culture. I was kind of doing a lot of work in culture, and she came running out uh, midway through, and she was like, you have to connect. I think it would be fantastic to kind of have a conversation about with your book, and I went in, and, and we kind of watched a little bit of the lecture, and I went, okay, this is this would be amazing, and I reached out, and, and I was so grateful that you caught up with me, and you played a really big part in bringing some contribution to a lot of the, the my book, Let's Talk Culture, and so... I mean, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you for your contribution. I, I was really, really grateful to be able to hear from your expertise in that area. Well, I wanted to thank you for reaching out to me. And it was a, a privilege to be interviewed for your book. Uh, and I really am a, a fan of what you put together. It's a really nice how-to guide of going about uh, thinking about culture change 
in a way that actually is very aligned with the way I think about culture through the lens of language. Oh, thank you. Everywhere I travel, I tend to use this one quote, and it was from a conversation. I'm not sure if you remember when we were talking through the book. You said, Shane, if you want to start an argument within academics, just try to ask them to define culture. And everywhere I go, I have that very similar conversation because the, the number one question I get asked all the time from people is, well, how do you define culture? And I mean, you, you've been sitting in this space for so long. I mean, how do you, I'm not going to ask you to try and define it because we know that's a, a big challenge, but why do you think there is this obsession with trying to define culture or bring language to culture? Yeah, I think it's because I think intuitively people know and understand that culture is really important for the success of a group, of an organization, of even arguably an entire nation. And yet when we talk about culture, we're often talking about different facets of culture. So some of us tend to focus on a shared value, and that's the defining feature of culture. Others think not about the values, but rather about the norms that guide behavior, which are, of course, influenced, but only partially by the underlying value. For example, we may not actually feel aligned with the values of a group, but we still figure out how to fit into that group. And so we might focus more on that more uh, behavioral side of, of culture. And still others think not about those things, but rather about the things that aren't spoken, like how people dress and what the environment looks like and what artifacts are around. And so I think that's part of the challenge is that we all mean slightly different things, even though we all recognize that the big idea, the big C culture is something that we all recognize to be important. Yeah, it's like we, uh, I've, I've described it once, like when I was going through a museum in Florence and looking at the Statue of David, and I said, depending on where you stand, there's all these kind of different perspectives that you have from it. And the, the tour guide that we were with told us this story about uh, the Statue of David, his hands. Have you ever heard the, the story about, about David's hands are disproportionate to his body? And it's a really strange thing. So they were like, did Michelangelo make a mistake when, when kind of sculpting his hands? And they said originally there was a, a statue that was designed to be up, elevated quite high. And if you didn't have disproportionate hands, then they would look relatively small based on being able to look up at the sculpture. And then obviously it was not used to be elevated, then it was kind of brought down to eye level and then it kind of seems like it's disproportionate. And so based on where you look at something, you kind of get a different perspective. I think we have that in our organizations, right? We go, well, we, I don't know if you hear this, I hear like, we want to create a culture of innovation or we want to create a culture of belonging or a culture of productivity or a culture of collaboration. And it's like we're looking at one slice of a, of a giant pie, really. Absolutely. And actually, just, and just to build on what you said, even what you just said there, a culture of something is one perspective on culture. And I would describe that as a more content-driven perspective on culture. What I mean by that is emphasizing certain values, beliefs, norms, and so on. But there's another, I think, equally powerful lens on culture, which is a more distributional lens. And that's, let's just hold constant what you think the culture is about and what I think the culture is about and what other people in the organization think it's about. Let's look at how our views relate to one another. And we can actually characterize the culture independent of the content based on these distributional properties of the group as a whole. Um, and that's yet another way of thinking about culture. And I think that's what makes it so interesting, but also complicated. Yeah, especially if you're starting out in a career. Uh, if, I often work with people who are navigating that journey from being part of a team to then leading a team. And I, I often liken it to being a passenger or a gold class flyer to them being behind the controls of the plane. And so it's not surprising that when someone sits behind the controls of the plane, they're looking at all of these levers to pull on. 
and one of these giant pieces kind of levers to pull on his culture and they go, oh my gosh, I've never even had to consider what culture is. And then they go, I'll just do a little bit of research and they start to look up culture and they, all of a sudden it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's like doors within doors. They open up one door and then they realize there's 12 more that sits with inside it. So I think it can feel quite confusing for a lot of people to try and navigate culture within an organization. And I think one of the things that I've seen from the work that I've been doing, and I would love to know your thoughts on it, is that I often find because it is so it's such a big idea, it becomes very almost abstract or it feels very intangible or really kind of ethereal. And so people go, oh, culture is just this thing that's really important, but it's a bit fluffy and it's a bit soft and it's a bit, you know, abstract. Do you find that? For sure. For sure. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for anyone who's either doing consulting as you are doing or research, as I'm often more focused on uh, related to culture, is that people can sometimes throw up their hands and say it's just too big and, and messy. And so I think this is consistent with how you tend to think about it, which is one can still make progress on culture by choosing a facet, whether it's content, say there's a particular dimension of culture that you think is really important, but is not prevalent enough in the culture and you want to think about shoring it up or going back to the, dis the distributional properties, maybe the issue is around strength, the extent to which different people understand and agree on what the culture is independent of that content. Maybe we can try to create more alignment about the culture. Picking a dimension or two or three dimensions and just starting to make progress, I think um, can, can you know, pay real dividends even if you don't solve the the full intergalactic problem. That's a really nice way of putting it. And I think one of the things that I, I know that you're really fascinated with is trying to bring some sense of practicality or movement or progress into some of these big areas and not just culture. I mean, right across kind of the social science space. I mean, what's what, what are you working on at the moment? I mean, you're, you're currently in New York at the moment. We're just wrapping up a sabbatical year from uh, UC Berkeley but I will be heading back uh, shortly. And during the sabbatical, one of the things I've been spending a lot of time working on is defining and setting up a so-called culture mega study. So what I mean by a mega study is a large randomized controlled trial. And as you know, and as I suspect a lot of your listeners know, one of the, the perhaps the gold standard for social science research is a randomized controlled trial because it tells us what practices have a causal effect on an outcome we care about. And um, it's routinely done now in, in the realm of, for example, website design. We do A-B testing all the time, yet it's quite uncommon in the realm of people practices. And I think part of what I and some of my colleagues are on a mission to try to change is just that. Like, why can't we bring the same rigor that we bring to testing out different versions of our websites to thinking about the people practices that guide organizational culture. So this particular study that we're thinking about is focused on a topic that, at least in the U.S., is really critical for a lot of organizations. But I don't think it's just a U.S.-specific phenomenon. We're seeing it in, in many organizations, and that's a focus on creating more inclusive workplace cultures. It's a challenge uh, and, and one that a lot of organizations and universities have spent money and resources of time on. But the evidence we have right now is not that great. The evidence basically suggests that all of the money that's been spent on diversity training and various initiatives and programs has on average not had a big impact and in some cases had a negative impact. So the idea of this mega study that we're working on is to try to design a set of interventions 
that can actually change inclusion and belonging outcomes in the context of a randomized controlled trial. And the approach we're taking is to begin with social networks. So the idea here is that one of the reasons that people might feel excluded from a workplace is because they are actually structurally excluded in the organization. So we know that social networks are a big part of how information gets processed and flows through an organization, how mentorship gets allocated amongst people in an organization, how people learn about the strategy of an organization, and so on. And if we look at all the evidence on social networks, what we find is that the marginalized groups tend to be on the periphery of a social network. So if we can design an intervention that helps people to, quote, rewire their social networks so that they form new ties and get better integrated into the organization structurally, that ought to have an impact on how they actually feel. So this is one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time on is designing a inclusion and belonging mega study, which we're going to be implementing at six different universities this upcoming academic year with all of their full-time non-academic staff. And as we know, staff in a lot of universities generally feel a little bit on the edges of the, of the organization. Uh, they're not faculty, they're not students, uh, but they play a vital role. And so, and especially if they're women or, or underrepresented minorities in such organizations, they can feel especially on the edges. So this intervention is designed to try to help these individuals build different kinds of networks and hopefully feel more included. And we're trying to run this, as I said, in a, uh, you know, think about an end year, a total sample size of, you know, five to 10,000 participants across many different universities. That's the scale of the intervention we're thinking about here. So can you, can you clarify just a little bit when you say social networks, what, what's kind of encompassed within that? Cause I can imagine that's very, there's a lot of things that make up a person's social network at work. Yeah. So this is one of the interesting things is that we can measure social networks in different ways. One of the things we can do is to run a network survey. So the typical way this is done is we would give you a roster of employees in your organization we'd have you tell us which employees you've been in touch with and, and exchanged social resources with. And once we identify that set of people, we can then ask what kinds of resources were exchanged. Was it primarily about friendship and social support? Or was it more about getting work done? Or was it more about mentorship or what have you? The challenge, of course, with the survey-based method is that it is incredibly time-intensive. So imagine a three, four, or five, thousand person organization to fill out a roster of all of those people and all of the connections could take you, you know, several hours if you've been there a long time. And we know there are all kinds of biases that come with survey-based measures. We may not remember everyone we were in touch with. We tend to remember higher status people more than lower status people and so on. So what we are doing as an alternative is to use metadata of employee communications. What I mean by that is, imagine you and I, Shane, are communicating a lot with each other over email or Slack or Microsoft Teams. That's a digital record of our interactions. And we can collect those data at scale for everybody in the organization. And we can do so in ways that still preserve privacy and confidentiality by masking the identities of all the people involved. And through this kind of process, we can start to basically back out the network structure of the organization without having to do all of the survey stuff. We can then run some additional 
validations by doing surveys of some people and combining it with their email or Slack data and trying to find what are the predictors of a social tie existing versus a work tie existing. But through this kind of approach, we can actually assess the different kinds of networks that exist in the organization and then design the intervention to help you build the kinds of connections that will help you feel better included. I think it's such a fascinating insight because I think it links back to a lot of your research that which we connected over. And I, I use a bit of the language that you, you gave me when we caught up, which was that culture leaks in our language. And I love what I, what I love about your work is that you've found this way to kind of almost tap into language as a, a tool to be able to understand some of these kind of social constructs and people um, relationships within a business and an organization. And I'd be really curious to know, so in terms of like bringing this together, are you looking to then get the organization to implement some practices and then measure the change in, say, a person's connection to the organization, to other people, their social network. Yeah, so exactly. So that's, that's the basic idea is imagine we have a set of participants in a study, a research study to begin with, and we're going to put them into different conditions. So condition one is a so-called control condition, just like as if you would have if you were running a trial to test out a new pharmaceutical drug, you'd have a a control arm of the study, which would get a placebo, right? And here, we're going to do essentially a placebo version of social networks. We're going to uh, have you exchange knowledge with people, but we're going to do it over Zoom or some online platform where the exchange of knowledge is done anonymously using like a Dropbox or box folder. And that is the control condition. So I'm interacting with somebody else, but I don't really have the chance to build a relationship and then in the treatment arms, I'm going to do it with a facilitator who is going to actually expose me to the real people who are in my group. I'm going to actually build real ties with them. And then I'm going to be able to measure pre and post intervention, how uh, the outcomes of these different groups change as a function of these different exposures that they've had, control versus various treatment groups. And we can measure different kinds of outcomes, network outcomes, social psychological outcomes, and then career outcomes, things like promotion and retention and so on. And say we find that there's a particular approach. So one of the ideas we're thinking about is, you know, uh, we, we know that people, if you think about networks, tend to have networks that vary on the extent to which they are really concentrated in one network community versus they bridge across different parts of the organization. And so in one of the interventions, we can expose participants to people who are from different network communities and thereby help them get better integrated in the organization. So by doing this kind of approach, we can actually measure pre-post the extent to which their networks change and their sense of inclusion changes. And if we find that intervention is most effective, now that becomes a way we can deliver things like learning and development programs, things like onboarding programs to support people in building networks that will help them feel better included. I feel like there has been a lot of work identifying a lot of problems that exist, and this is pushing towards for what feels like the first time some kind of progress and action towards a solution. Is that your intention behind this? Very much so. And, and uh, you know, this goes back to some of the conversations we've had in the past, which is, you know, one of my frustrations about this line of work is that we have now amassed a tremendous amount of evidence about different forms of inequality that exist in organizations and in the world. 
And that work is really important. And I've, I'm very grateful to those who have come before me and have documented these different forms of inequality. But we now have so many studies that show this. It, it is now a social fact that's pretty well-established and, and incontrovertible. The question now to me is, what do we do about it? And I think a lot of the focus of research needs to shift now to not documenting inequality, but actually thinking about tangible levers to change inequality. And if I put myself into the shoes of a CEO or general manager that's actually thinking about budget that he or she needs to allocate across a set of potential programs, I think the question we need to start getting to is, how do I assess the relative ROI of these investments? And I think we need research designs, including things like, you know, randomized controlled trials of multiple interventions to get to that kind of question. I, I, what I like about your work is that you, you really do dig into some of the language piece within an organization. And I, I remember having a conversation with you where you kind of alluded to this idea that it's really hard to find bias in your everyday language, because if we were to fill out a survey, we could kind of fill it out with our own biases or our own perspective. But when you go and you analyze a big set of data, like the the language within an organization, you can pick up a lot more that you maybe wouldn't typically see. And I'm wondering for people who are maybe hearing you for the first time, that was a big piece of the original research that we connected over, wasn't it? Like was looking into the way that language kind of leaks and bring insight. Do you want to maybe give people a quick snapshot of what that was about? Absolutely. So, so it's, it's pretty well known that if we were to survey you and ask you about uh, your cultural fit, say, with an organization, that there's strong social desirability motivations that will guide your responses, right? So if you know what the culture of the organization is or what the espoused culture of the organization is, you have some motivation to respond back to say that your own preferences and values and norms are well aligned with that because we want to think of ourselves as being uh, rational people who've made a good choice to be in this place, sort of tell ourselves that we fit in well into this organization. But if then we were to look at your actual language use, and here I will just to, you know, add a little bit of nuance to what you said, Shane, is that I don't think that language use or interactional language use, as we talk about it, is completely devoid of social desirability bias. Surely, when you're writing an email to your CEO, you're thinking a lot about how your message is going to be perceived by the audience. So I'm not suggesting that it's completely devoid of that. However, if we look at just your exchanges with colleagues over time, the natural communication you have, again, over email or Slack or other places we might be able to record Zoom, might be able to record your language, it's much more likely that your natural tendencies are going, to, are going to leak out, to use the term you just used a little while ago, in, in the way you're expressing your words. So for example, if, if you're in a place that really tends to value collective uh, orientations and tends to frown on people who are overly individualistic, then you might naturally start to begin to use we language rather than I language, because you've inferred that that's the local norm and it's going to come out in your language use. Now, could you, in principle, censor yourself and say, I'm going to go back to every, my email and every place I see an I, I'm going to replace it with a we? Yes, it's possible. But you're less likely to do that over the course of all of the routine interactions you have in, in, in a given day. And that's why we think these measures are, are especially good at it. If we now think about going beyond things like email to Slack, here we have even more variation, right? So you and I might connect it to each other through the DM network in Slack. 
We might also be connected to each other through the public channels network in Slack or the private channels network. And the degree to which I'm going to be self-censoring is going to vary likely across those. So we can actually begin to disentangle these through a lot of the communication media. And, and that, I think that's where a lot of the promise of this comes is that our enacted culture, if you will, is, gonna, is going to come out through our, our unself-conscious communication uh, in, in, in these different ways. Format And one of the questions I was asked just a couple of weeks ago at a HR conference is someone said, you know, what do you think is the role of culture, uh, hiring for culture fit versus hiring for culture ad? I was so excited to get asked that question because it, it reminded me of the conversation that you and I had and, and one that I even wrote about in the book, which is this idea of cultural adaptability. And a big piece of that came from you. I mean, do you want to maybe unpack what, what, is, it, what is cultural adaptability? Because that came through in the study of people being able to adapt to language within an organization, right? This was actually one of the core analyses in, in a paper of ours from 2018. And when I say ours, I should say a lot of the work that you and I have been talking about is work I've been doing in collaboration with Amir Goldberg, who was my longtime collaborator and with whom I co-founded the Computational Cultural Lab. He's a professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. And this was a 2018 paper that we had together with a couple of additional colleagues in which we showed that uh, at least in one organizational setting, if we were contrasting the career success of people who join the organization with high levels of initial cultural fit, but who exhibit low rates of cultural adaptation, meaning learning how to adapt to the evolving culture of the organization, versus those who came in with relatively low levels of initial fit, but who exhibited high adaptability and could quickly learn the new culture, that the second group tended to outperform the first. And the, I think the implication is that if we think about organizational culture, even if we might write down the values and norms on a piece of paper and put them up on every wall in a conference room, the actual lived culture of an organization is constantly evolving. And it takes some effort to understand what that lived culture is and to figure out how to fit in within it. And so to me, that's actually one of the most important things is can you identify and hire people who are quick to perceive the culture and how it's in subtle ways beginning to shift and can learn how to adapt to it. Um, that, I think, is a more important dimension to focus on than hiring for cultural fit. And, and the cultural ad thing, I think, is an interesting one to think about. What I find unhelpful about it is it's unclear when and how we should focus on hiring misfits into an organization. It's a good idea to not only hire strongly fitting people, but how many misfits do you need and to what extent should they be misfitting? I think that's not well specified in the culture ad space. And, and the, I think it's problematic because it doesn't really, doesn't really provide much guidance except for don't blindly hire for cultural fit. One of the phrases that I, I tend to just use quite a lot is culture for us is about being aligned at the core and inclusive at the edge. Because one of the challenges is always we look at edges and we go, okay, well, if you think about the culture of an organization as being aligned, we go, well, how do we make everyone fit within this circle? And then you forget that, like, actually, if we have everyone within the circle, we lose all of the benefits of the diversity and the people who sit at the edges and the peripherals. And so our goal with culture is never going to be to find everyone who's operating exactly the same because we lose that creativity and we lose that edge and we lose that difference, which actually is the thing that makes us better. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you lose the opposition, right? Because part of one of the most valuable roles that cultural misfits play is that they oppose what is expected and what is a default thing for the organization to do. 
And sometimes the, uh, the op embracing the opposers is actually really hard for a culture to do, but is super important for the long-term success of any organization. I was coaching with someone who worked in an industry which is quite a fast-paced industry. And she had someone join her team and we had been working together for three or four months. And she said, you know, I just feel like this is such a reactive culture. Everything is so fast paced. We're constantly reactive to things. And she said, we've hired this person and she came onto our team and she is like methodical and slow and thinks things through and she's thorough. And she said, my initial response was, how do I get her to change to be more like our culture? And she said, but then I had this moment, I thought like, Instead of asking, how could I get her to change to be part of our culture? I started asking, what could we learn from her to make our culture better? And she said, rather than how, how do we become, how do we make her be more reactive? It's like, how do we become less reactive by allowing her to challenge some of the ways that we do things? So I think it's a really nice example of those kind of culture misfits that help us make our organizations better. I would love to kind of hear a bit of your thoughts. So one of the things that obviously embarking on this kind of mega study like this is that you would have some kind of hypothesis in your mind of, of maybe what you're hoping to get out of it or what you might be hoping to see. And it might be too early to say that, but is there anything that you kind of are predicting that you might see as a result of these? Any things that you go, oh, I think these might be really interesting levers to pull on? Yeah. So we have two hypothesized mechanisms that are at the core of our study, which is if we're thinking about inclusive cultures and creating a stronger sense of inclusion and belonging, we think that there are two distinct pathways to getting there. So one is being more deeply immersed and better connected and, and more integrated with people who are like you on, on some underlying dimension, right? So think about this as like, I can feel better connected to my company as a whole or the organization as a whole insofar as I can find my crowd in the organization, people who are like me. And so one of the sets of interventions we're thinking about is about that. It's about exposing you to people that based on the network measures we have and the cultural measures we have are likely to be, be people that you would think of as being in your crowd. And you know, having more of those connections, we think, uh, can help you to feel better connected to the organization as a whole. But there's a, a separate pathway, which is very different. And that pathway is about feeling better integrated into the organization as a whole. So we know that you know, a lot of people can feel like they are, they have their crowd, but their crowd itself is peripheral in the organization. So I'm, I'm, I, I've got my people, but my people as a group are really not the key players in the organization. And therefore, I can feel isolated. I can feel some alienation uh, from the organization because I'm only connected into my world, right? So think about in the university world, I might be in, in the anthropology department. And maybe I feel a great connection to anthropology, but I don't really feel connected to economists and political scientists and all the other groups that might exist. So in a similar way, another pathway to feeling a sense of inclusion and belonging is by broadening your network across those different communities. And that's more about knowing what's, quote, going on in the organization, right? And knowing that there are some shared values and norms that uh, we all have. And if I can get exposed to people outside of my little world, then I might feel better connected to the organization as a whole. So those are just two examples. But then those are more structural uh, levers we can pull, right, in terms of network exposure. They're also psychological levers. So we, there's a, an interesting literature, which I know you're familiar with, Shane, on you know, growth and fixed mindsets that's been applied to the world of education. 
But there's a very interesting, relatively recent line of work that thinks about growth mindsets as it relates to networking. And it turns out that we can actually manipulate or influence the extent to which you think about, about networks and networking as something that people are just inherently good at versus uh, it being like a muscle that you can develop and build and learn. And so another idea we're thinking about is, can we, in these interventions, prime people to think about networking as uh, a more malleable kind of uh, skill that can be learned? And we suspect that if you can prime people to think that way and then expose them to new colleagues that vary in these dimensions, that we could really amplify this effect. I am so excited to hear the results of this. And I know we're a long way from hearing some of the results of this, but I think it's going to be a really a really insightful experience. But also, I think it's going to bring some really pragmatic help to people. And I think whether it's inclusion and diversity, whether it's culture, whether it's any of these kind of people connectedness areas, or we're all looking for the thing that we go, if we could just get some practical tools and tips to help us, then we can maybe just do this a little bit better. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see, see where, that, where this is going to go, where it will end up. I, I, if I was to give you, you know, maybe 30, 40, 60 seconds to stand on a soapbox and knowing that we've got a bunch of people here who listen to the podcast, who are often in leadership roles, they're trying to create culture within their team or create culture within their organization and they just feel sometimes a little bit lost and a bit kind of uncertain of where to go. Well, I mean, what, what's the thing that you would say to them and leave them with out of this conversation today if you just had 60 seconds with them? So uh, that's a great question. And uh, I think a couple of things I would say. One is, I think effective leaders go beyond just having that instinctive understanding or belief that culture might matter and actually are intentional about both assessing and then trying to change their culture. Let me say a little bit more about both of those. So the assessment part is actually being serious about trying to characterize and understand the culture that exists and ways in which it's helping or hurting you in achieving your goals, right? And so that can be done through a variety of ways. And we can go run the gamut from, I'm just going to walk around and ask people about what they see as the culture. Or I'm going to be a good old-fashioned ethnographer and just sit and observe uh, meetings and, and take notes. That's great. You can go beyond that and run surveys. You can go beyond that and get digital trace data and run natural language processing. You can get Zoom videos and, you know, there's a whole, but being purposeful and choiceful and deliberative about assessment is really, I think, important. And then having identified what you see as the gaps and opportunities, I think then the second part of this is saying, how do I create a culture that's going to actually help me achieve my goals? And if I look at this baseline assessment, there may be two or three things that we could really benefit from. Maybe we're too risk averse and we need to create a more uh, risk-tolerant culture. Well, what are a couple of levers we could pull? And then the thing I would commend to many organizations is to get beyond the mentality of, I'll just run a pilot and I'll get some result and then I'll decide what to do. We all know that pilots can be rigged to achieve whatever outcome you're looking for, right? And then I say rigged is maybe too strong a term. Pilots exist and they give you one body of evidence, but we have biases. So if we want our pilot to succeed, we can stack the decks in ways that'll make them succeed. And if we're skeptical, we can do the opposite. So I think running real experiments, you know, uh, with, with randomization is hard to do, but if you can do it well, you can really learn a lot. 
And last thing I'll say is for those practitioners who are serious about this, there are a, there's a large set of academics who are actually looking for research sites in which they can run studies. And I think we have really done a poor job collectively in, in connecting the dots between the worlds of research and practice. But there's a lot of win-win space, you know, questions that will advance the state of academic research and inform practice. And if we can just make the marriage between the worlds of, uh, of, of leaders and the worlds of researchers, I think we could really uh, advance the ball for both sides. What a great way to end the conversation. I, I, so I feel like I could talk to you all day. I found this last time when we did the interview for the book. I was just, I was waiting to continue this. And so I'm, I'm going to bring the podcast to close, but then we're going to continue this conversation for the next 12 hours, if that's okay with you. I know it's nighttime in Manhattan, but we'll, I just want to continue this conversation forever. Um, one thing that's really stood out to me in this conversation is a lot of people feel overwhelmed because culture is big. And because they feel overwhelmed, they, they tend to do nothing or they sit back and kind of go deep into analysis as opposed to getting into the pragmatic nature of it. And what, what you said at the beginning, which is this idea of just, just pick one or two things, or even in that last statement there going like, pick one element of our culture, maybe we're a little bit risk averse. They go, how do we now work towards shifting that and changing that? And rather than getting, you know, a little pilot together, but actually just run into some experiments and go, Hey, if we, if we do something practically, we can actually start to shift these elements. And then we know which of the levers that we can pull on this can help us to do more of that. And so culture can be feel a little bit overwhelming, but it can be quite pragmatic and practical and, and achievable for people. And so I've really appreciated this conversation. I'm looking forward to following along with your work. Uh, where could people, what's the best way for people who want to follow along on this kind of journey with you to connect with you and, and your team? I'm glad you asked that question. And that's a great way to conclude perhaps. But one of the things that I think I mentioned at the beginning that I, that I, I uh, am involved in, help co-found and co-direct, is the Berkeley Culture Center. And the whole purpose of the Berkeley Culture Center is to connect the worlds of research and practice. So if any of your listeners uh, is interested, uh, we'd love to have you come to our annual cultural conference where you will meet both academics who are doing research in this field, but also practitioners who are thinking seriously about culture. It's also the place from which we design and launch these various research studies. If your firm has an interest in taking part in one or more of these We'd love to figure out a way to collaborate with you. Um, but you can look me up and you can look up the Berkeley Culture Center. And uh, that's, I think, a very tangible way to connect into this work. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I'll put all of the links um, for that in the show notes so people could be able to find you and to connect with you and to connect with the, the work and the conference. Samir, thank you so much for taking some time to, to talk to me and being on Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you so much, Shane. Great talking with you again. Really enjoyed it. That's it for another week of Phone Calls with Clever People. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.